Thanks for tuning in to Tax Strategy Digest, where we explore the fascinating world of finance. Join us as we dive into the stories, insights, and experiences of experts, thought leaders, and everyday people who are making a difference in this field. Through engaging conversations and thought-provoking discussions, we'll take a deep dive into the latest research, trends, and innovations shaping finance. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn something new on this journey here with us. Welcome to this episode of Tax Strategy Digest. Today, our guest is Seth Proctor. Seth is an attorney at Nelson Mullins and primarily focuses on tax equity investments in renewable energy, tax controversy, and funds. Seth, thanks for joining me on the episode today. Great to have you. Hey, awesome to be here, Paul. Super stoked we got linked up, man. I am too. I'm really excited. So Seth, why don't we get it started right now? Tell us a little bit about your story. What do you do and how'd you get here? So a little bit of a non-traditional path into the tax world. Uh, I came off uh, four years of active duty litigating largely criminal stuff in the military. Um, but you know, I had already had, I want to go into tax is my way to be, uh, which was fun though, right? Because I, I don't know if every tax attorney does the same thing, but you know, when I was coming into law school, everyone asked you, what do you want to do? What do you want to do, right? And uh, my response was, oh God, anything but tax. That sounds terrible, right? Like I'm an English literature major. You want me to deal with things involving numbers? No. Um, but you know, then I think how it goes for a lot of people is you take your first tax class, you sit down and you go, oh, this is great. This is fun. This is problem solving. And um, you know, a lot of times there's an answer. Uh, at least you can get in the ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I know you're you're a big tax guy now, right? Obviously, you work with a lot of tax. Um, recently, there's been a lot of controversy over the IRS is adding some additional funding. What what do you think about that? I think it's great. Um, our tax group head here at Nelson Mullins is also the head of the ABA tax section for this year. Um, his tour, I'll say his tour of duty, just to make it uh, fun, right? Uh, his tour of duty ends this August. Um, but he just wrote uh, to the Senate as the head of the ABA uh, tax section that, hey, you guys are fighting over funding for the IRS beyond you know, what was already decided in the Inflation Reduction Act. We all think it's a great idea. We want there to be better funding for the IRS. We want great agents. We want the best people at the IRS. Um, and the reason for that's pretty simple. When you have a really competent and not super overworked party on the other side of the aisle from you, um, it makes life a lot better. And, you know, that's not just a, oh, you know, woe is me. I want things to be easier for me as an attorney. It boils down to the client, right? Because if we have to fight through the administrative process, Let's, you know, let's just say we're in tax controversy world, right? If we have to fight through the administrative process with an agent that you know, just doesn't get the position, right? Or doesn't understand why we're there fully. And we're just deny, deny, deny. And then you end up going to tax court. And you know, what does all of those billables add up to? Um, that, that's tough for the client. I don't think that's fair to everybody else. And if you change that, that system and you now have a really top-notch person there who isn't so overwhelmed that they can actually pay attention to their cases, I think it makes it better for clients. It makes it, it makes it more efficient and it makes it smarter. 
do you think that uh no that that's perfect do you think that this funding is going to create more competent counterparts on the the side of the irs and um just create a a better you know teamwork collaboration so to speak yeah i think so um you know on the tax world side and just you know large firms in general um most associates don't stay around at large firms and make a partner right uh, either because that's not what they want out of their life, um, or it just doesn't boil down to work out for them. And so they are a large feeder, large firms are a large feeder into government work. And if you now have the positions available um, and the ability to pay those people in line with their talents, right? Obviously on a GS scale uh, appropriately, then they're gonna go there they're going to want to go there because it's going to fit with their interests. Um, I absolutely think it's going to attract people and I think it's going to start to solve the problem. I mean, it's not going to do it yesterday, right? But <laughs> Totally. And what are some of the examples where it might really benefit? I mean, are there certain laws that maybe are getting overlooked because there's not enough, uh, you know, force, so to speak, that this is going to benefit? Yeah, you know, I think the easiest one for me to point down to just because it's kind of something I'm dealing with right now is if you look at section 280E, right? E is an echo. It deals with um, exclusion of certain deductions and benefits uh, for drug trafficking, right? We'll just put that in the largest category possible. Um, well, the problem with that is marijuana or cannabis is still illegal on the federal level. Um, but then you have all these states who have made it legal, either recreationally or medically, and you have the people servicing that consumer need or desire, right? Um, so what do those people do, right? How does that business line up when you can't do normal business things? Um, and so that kind of creates a quandary for them, right? Um, Either they're not fully telling the truth to the IRS sometimes, or they are just at a massive disadvantage in getting punched in the face. And I'll say, you know, I've never encountered one that's not telling the truth to the IRS or like, you know, hiding the hiding the ball in their books. Um, but you know, that that's kind of the quandary that people would be faced with in like the most basic way possible. Um, so let's say, all right you can have a deduction as a uh, dispensary right for cost of goods sold cogs and that's pretty much all you got right um well what do you do in that situation where you have to decide how much of your dispensary works for the trafficking function and how much of your dispensary works for the other function right um, because I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I assume everyone else probably wears a couple hats in their organization, right? So let's just say you've got a CFO at a dispensary, the organization that owns the dispensary, right? Well, CFO definitely probably does things that relate to the trafficking function, right? Uh, but you know, the other part of their job is just general management. And that boils down to just the general manager of the dispensary. So some of their day is going to be allocated to I'm doing trafficking things, right? Technically under 280. But the other part of their day is going to be 
just general managerial stuff, right? Like, hey, how are we processing point of sale stuff? How is our packaging going, right? Um, same thing for normal retail workers. How much of their day is spent trafficking? Obviously, we're, we're on audio, so you can't see me doing quote fingers, right? But like, how much is on quote fingers trafficking? And how much of it is on selling merchandise, right? That's not, not something that's prohibited under 280E. Um, it's a very long like way of saying something because I'm an attorney and I can't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, I think it's great. And it, for anybody who is, um, maybe there's people who are listening that are dealing with this exact problem who uh, own a dispensary. What are some of the things that they come to you asking for? So they want help breaking down and understanding how to allocate their expenses if they're gonna figure out their, their COGS, right? Their cost of goods sold. I'm trying to figure out a way that's gonna be reasonable for the IRS when they inevitably almost audit this. Um, and that's the question, right? And so that is gonna boil down to being really fact specific. Um, hey, let's, let's look at your floor plan. How much of this is selling sweatshirts and hats? And how much of this is selling legitimate cannabis flower or, um, you know, edibles or blooty blooty blah, blah. Right. Um, and then the other side of that is how do we plan and structure ourselves in a way that makes it, I'm going to say palatable for the, the IRS, the, the examining agent, if we get looked at, um, you know, the easy answer to that is like, just keep detailed books, right? I know it's tough um, and you guys are largely operating in a startup space, but that's what you got to do. Because if you look at some of the cases that have been adjudicated, you look at the tax court decisions on them, the judges will say, you did a great job keeping books and this made this a lot better. Uh, or we can't really make X or Y finding and decision because there's just no evidence of it. It might be there, but we don't have it. <laughs> um, what, yeah. what are some of the other business ventures that maybe it's not just marijuana that this might fall under as well? Or, or is this strictly with marijuana? You know, I mean, I'm just thinking of that one specific instance in marijuana. But, you know, if we're thinking overall help with the IRS, um, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of transactions that are done that are super complicated. And so much of my work focuses in partnership tax stuff, everything that falls under subchapter K. And having someone who understands those is just really hard to find. <laughs> Uh, subchapter K is awful if you don't enjoy it, you know, if you don't hate yourself like me and enjoy it. <laughs> um, so everything from, you know, large private equity funds down to just, you know, in, in the world that, you know, Chris initially operated and a bunch of my friends operate in as, as financial advisors, right? Like just making sure that there's enough good people to be able to review things that are being done just to help people get to retirement, right? Um, I, I think it's just a really good thing. And uh, yeah, sorry, I, I'm gonna go down like a weird policy rabbit hole. No, there. no, that's okay. That's okay. I got <laughs> another question though on the same topic. 
Um, how does the Inflation Reduction Act affected your guys' practice? Oh, it's been huge. Um, it's been huge on the corporate side, and it's been huge for us as tax guys, um, which you know might be easy to guess looking at the language of it, right? Uh, not only are you getting uh, a revitalization of just what I'm going to call energy investment tax credits, right? Um, it's you've got the whole 30% there that's available for most of what I do, which is a lot of solar, right? And then the tack on that's there for what they call energy communities, right? Um, that's great. What we see in the, the Eastern half of the country and, you know, my whole family, a lot of them, we're all from Kentucky, right? A lot of them worked in coal mines. Those jobs just aren't there anymore. And, uh, you know, I'm already seeing with projects we work on a lot of solar utility scale solar facilities getting put in in West Virginia, Kentucky, all of these places where those jobs weren't before. Um, and that's one been a boon for us, which is great. But two, you know, looking at the local communities, like all of those people have skills, right? They know how to build things. They know how to work with their hands. They understand mechanics. Okay, great. Like, now they can work on this higher tech stuff and make sure they're getting good jobs with good wages because boom, you have a wage and apprenticeship requirement to get all these things now. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's been huge, you know, and then the other side of it is, I think what we're going to see in the coming years is a diversification of the people that are involved as investors in these projects. Right. Um, and like, trying to not get too deep into it. But what you used to see would be your developer company that's going to build the project, run it, blooty, blooty, blah, blah. And then as part of the funding for that, you have a tax equity investor, right? And the tax equity investor invests the money to get all this stuff done. And then the way you have the allocation set is all the tax credit flows through and up to the tax equity investor. Well, historically, you had to be an entity or you know i guess in some cases a person with enough income for the year for that to make sense right i'm going to put in this money and i need this amount of tax credit to help offset my income for the year um and you know what was it i think in 2020 or 2021 i was looking at it and uh bank of america and one other bank were the top two tax equity investors by a long shot in the massive majority of solar deals. Um, and now we're in a situation, thanks to the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, where, okay, maybe it doesn't matter so much if you don't have all this income to offset, because now you have section 6417 and section 6418, um, which allow for either direct pay of a credit amount, right? So just cash out from the government to uh, a non-taxable entity, right? So we'll just say like a, like a government entity, right? Uh, under section 6417. And then you can have the ability to sell your tax credit under 6418. Um, and I think that's going to change it, right? Because maybe people want to be involved, but they're not sure if they're going to have the income. Um, maybe they don't have the income, but they found a way that this works for them to monetize their investment right? Because now they can sell the credit on the open market. Yeah, I think it's going to be a huge change, man. <laughs> so that, that brings up an interesting question for me. Do you think that that is why 
so many people are investing in the solar because they're looking for these tax credits. They're looking for uh, energy credits where they can get certain payment from the government. Yeah, I think it's there. Um, you know, it's it's funny. My uh, I'm already flashing back to my second year of law school, my first tax class. Uh, Professor Kathleen Thomas is in front of the board introducing, you know, the concept of tax and policy our whole first week. And she says, you, a good tax system, right, wants to minimize distortions. Distortions being, of course, right, taxes causing people to engage in behaviors that they wouldn't have otherwise engaged in. But then the counterbalance to that is you can use tax policy to encourage overall policy objectives, right, or overall goals. And I think that's kind of what the, the IRA does here is um, there's that change now. Now there's the incentive of it's not just the tax credits that are there, but the monetization. And uh, yeah, I, I think that the, this is the rambling answer to your question of we've created a distortion that's being used to move policy. And I think um, that policy is good for investors. I think that policy is good for business because all the solar developers are now having a much larger opportunity to do more projects and employ more people. Um, and then that money is going to flow back into the economy from them. Uh, I, I think it's a great situation there. Um, but then the other side of it is, and I, I think this is something you can relate to also living in California, because I, uh, you know, we are talking offline and I, I split my time between Charlotte and San Diego, uh, since my wife is still out there. And, uh, you know, beyond just the investment side of it, right? And the way you can make it make money sense that way. Boy, I tell you what, man, I paid $36 cumulative over three years for all of my electricity <laughs> because we have a solar system, right? Um, and I think people are seeing the wisdom in that too. Um, even if PG&E is sometimes making it difficult. <laughs> I agree, I agree. And um, another thing I wanted to touch on, so we've kind of dove into the market conditions, right, of um, how that's kind of affected your business, but do you think that there's been a big difference between COVID, the lower interest rates, with giving everybody really a lot of buying power, and then now the current market conditions, there's higher interest rates, less buying power, but the government is still trying to stimulate the economy via tax credits, things like code section 64, 17, and 18, where they're providing new ways for investors to get paid by innovating and creating more jobs, wealth, and growth. Um, how is that affecting your business, just that shift from COVID till now? Yeah. I mean, boy, has it been a shift, right? Um, because you, it, it might as well have been free money there for a while. Um, <laughs> And you had deals just going crazy in the M&A space. Um, you know, I don't think you could go 30 minutes without hearing someone say SPAC either, right? Yep. <laughs> um, and, you know, that, that cooled off. And you saw that with a lot of firms hiring practices and, you know, the litigation groups kind of picking up uh, the majority of some income there for a little while. But I think that, like we were talking about, using tax policy to forward other policies and hand in hand with it. I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now. Um, you know, okay, so hey, we've, we've got to drill down on interest rates. The, the Fed's decided that that's how we're going to deal with inflation, right? Okay, well, that's that decision. 
well, what other policy can we put out there to make sure that this isn't just going to get, we're just not going to be getting punched in the face, right? Um, and I think that's what this has done. And I know it's limited to one sector, but, um, you know, just the volume of money moving around in that sector, um, I think it's really helped offset some of that, you know, that, that punch to the face. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And have you guys seen any difference? I know you do some work in the M&A space as well. So have you seen any decreases in transactions? I, I mean, obviously there's a decrease with lower buying power, but um, anything that's really out of the ordinary or is it as expected? Oh, that's a good one. You know, what is ordinary anymore, right? Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. I, I feel like, you know, we went from 2019 where we were thinking, oh yeah, new decade, new me, right? So excited to then, okay, we've got COVID to everything else that's just come to be in the last, you know, five years. Um, good Lord, right? Like I, I remember I was an undergrad when we had uh, the Great Recession. So it's just been a series of, of changes and dealing with those changes. But um, I, I think that's me saying, I don't know what normal is, man. Uh, <laughs> normal's tough. Yeah. Uh, I think the normal is uh, figuring out what works. And yeah, you're right. I'm right. We're both right that there's been a decrease in the M&A space. There was a little bit of a slowdown. Um, but I don't think that there's been anything I see in the work that we're doing that's like, wow, this is weird and different. I can't believe like this is the way it's going, right? It's just, you know, people adapting reasonably to the market space. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's super fun. I mean, at the end of the day, just like, okay, what are we going to do to deal with this? And there are some super bright people out there on the business side. And there are some just wildly smart counsel, both, you know, on the M&A corporate and tax side, figuring out ways to make business make sense. Um, and, you know, I know some firms, uh, you know, I'm not going to just pitch Nelson Mullins as the greatest firm ever, right? Of course, I, I, of course. I'm not going to lie. I love it here. But, you know, I, I know some firms really had to go so far as to lay off some people or delay start dates. Um, and, you know, in the space that, that we operate in, uh, we haven't really seen a huge, huge slowdown. Um, you know, we haven't had to delay new hire start dates. We haven't had to lay off associates. Like, it's been great. Um, yeah, life, uh, life finds a way, right? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> what's a what's a general piece of advice somebody listening right now could take into their own life today? Oh man, um, for for all the listeners, I'm I'm staring off in, into the darkness, uh, contemplating what the best piece of advice I could give would be. Um, you know, I, I think the best piece of advice I have is talk to a adv financial advisor. Don't feel like you're limited to just the standard 401k investments, right? To your standard Roth, putting it aside. Realize that there's a whole lot of fun ways to save your money, regardless of what income bracket you're in and, you know, how to change what your retirement and then, you know, even your day-to-day -day life within the next 10 years is going to look like because of what you've got. Um, Talk to people and ask questions. You got you got to be intellectually curious. That's the best piece of advice I can give anyone, man. I love it. That's perfect. And I always ask everybody as I close up here, um, what is your why? Oh, 
you know, I just couldn't be happier because everything that I do is kind of strange. Um, you know, I used to, for, for a while there, I was keeping all my tax books back here on my desk, all my code regulation sections. And um, people would ask like, oh, you know what, you guys really thought through that that much? My joke would be like, no, I, I keep them there so that all the corporate and M&A associates think I'm some sort of weird wizard that understands all the things that they don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, nah, you know, I, I think part of it is, honestly, I, I really enjoy that tax is challenging. I really love all things dealing with subchapter K because partnership stuff is difficult and it's weird um, and other people don't like doing it, right? The biggest turning point in my life was when, you know, we went from a whole classroom, lecture hall full of people in my federal income tax class, right? Tax one in law school to partnership tax, you know, the next semester where there was nine of us. And one of those dudes was someone from Duke who was there because they didn't offer the class, right? Um, and you went, oh, like, this is difficult and I'm kind of decent at it. This is fun. And, you know, and then everyone else in the partnership tax class, like, this is tough, you know, and you're sitting back there going, well, this is kind of fun. This is great. Um, so I think it lines up with, you know, I, I, I ran in college. I was a distance runner. It's the same reason I got into that, right? It's different. No one else likes it that much, and I'm pretty decent at it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. And, you know, the backside of that is I just, I just think it's a much more stable place to be, right? Um, I, I like the people that we work with. I like solving their problems. And, uh, you know, not once have I been up until you know, 2 a.m. on a closing night, like an M&A associate is. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, there, there's my long why. Uh, I no, think that's, this... that's perfect. And uh, <laughs> Seth, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on here, share some wisdom, share some knowledge with us. I'm going to put a link to your LinkedIn below so that anybody listening could reach out to you. Is there any other way that you'd like them to reach out if they have any questions or want to get a hold of you? Yeah. Hey, uh, Anyone that wants to reach out, ping me on LinkedIn. Uh, just use Dr. Google and search Seth Proctor, Nelson Mullins. Uh, you got my email and you got my direct line. I'm happy to talk. Um, I certainly don't start the clock as soon as we start talking, right? <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, Seth, thanks so much, man. I, uh, I always enjoy talking to you and we'll have to talk again soon. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you.